Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Talent Recruiter Podcast, where we interview successful talent recruiters and coaches to learn about their journey, the obstacles they've overcome, and how you can model their approach to build your talent recruitment practice. My name is Andrew Alex, and I'm joined by our illustrious host, Scott Solari. Scott, how are you? I'm doing great, Andrew. Good to uh, see you again, as usual, my friend, my cousin. As usual, cuz, yes, that's right. Not only are we excellent podcast hosts, but we are cousins. My brother from another mother. Hey, can we, uh, before we introduce this guest, can we talk to the audience real quick, Andrew? We can. What what do you want to, what do you want to tell them? Well, I really would like some feedback and engagement with the audience. Okay. I mean, is there something we can do for them if they, uh, if they reach out to us? There is. We Uh, can... Free consultation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what what we'd love to do is get some feedback from all of you wonderful listeners out there. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, or really just any general feedback about how these interviews have been going, we'd love to hear, you know, if you've implemented some of the tools that we've been sharing in your business. And you can do that by reaching directly out to either myself or Scott, at our email addresses at uh, getviral.com. And so that's G-E-T-V-Y-R-A-L. And my address is andrew.alix at getviral.com. And Scott is just scott at getviral.com. I don't know how you got away with no last name. A little easier. <laughs> a, little easier. a little bit easier. But we'd love to see hear some feedback from you guys and let us know how we're doing because ultimately this podcast is about helping your business. So if there are people that you think we should interview, if you have questions that we should be bringing up or, or that we can address with maybe some past guests, we'd love to bring that information to you. Perfect. Andrew, you nailed it. My God. Okay. Is that what you wanted to say? It. <laughs> yes, that's what I wanted to say. So now we get, can get to the to our business guest. at hand, which is our excellent guest today. His name is Bob Marshall. He is the founder of the Marshall Plan, well-known coach, speaker, and trainer with over 35 years of experience in the recruiting business, former pace setter, executive of the month, and regional manager for MRI before founding his own recruiting firm. Bob continues to work a desk while helping other recruiters double their business. Scott, what did you find out about Bob Marshall that's going to help out all of our excellent listeners? Well, our our listeners are in for a treat because Bob Marshall is, he's like the father of recruiting. I mean, he's the legend and he's known for helping people double their business. So if you want to double your business, call Bob immediately. But um, what you're going to learn on this is he goes through the 100-point day, uh, which a lot of people know about the, the the point system on how to keep yourself accountable and efficient. Um, he's going to talk about behavior change and then what really um, makes a good biller, you know, someone that's doing three to 400,000, you know, the difference between that type of biller and doing a million and what you need to change to get to that million. So that's the, I think that's going to be the biggest takeaway for a lot of good uh, talent recruiters out there to take it to that next level and really become what they, you know, if they want to hit that million dollar mark. Excellent. Well, let's find exactly uh, how Bob Marshall can help us do that. And we'll check back in with all of you after the interview. Bob Marshall, thank you for being here with me. 
Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. So, Bob, first thing I want to start off is obviously a lot of people listening probably know who you are, um, but some probably don't. So give us a little bit of background about, I mean, you've been in the industry for over 35 years, if not more. Tell us a little bit about how that all started and and where you are now. I know. I'm an old guy. Seems like it goes on and on (laughs) and on. Wise. A wise guy. Wise wise guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I started actually in 1980 in Reno, Nevada, went into a management recruiter office thinking they would place me at a casino maybe somewhere in Reno, and the franchisee, it was a franchise uh, office of MRI, uh, asked me if I would like to do what they did, and I didn't know what they did, so he kind of explained it to me. So I started working a desk in 1980 in Reno, and was there about three, little over three years, three and a half years. Then I became a uh, regional manager for them, basically a trainer in the 11 Western states, was hired by Alan Schoenberg, a legendary figure for us in recruitment, founder of, of MRI, worked for Alan for two years, and then I didn't want to travel anymore, didn't like to fly, that's a whole other story that I can talk to you about, if you'd like, and uh, so I became the manager of MR Sausalito. I'm from California, actually I'm from where you are now, San Diego, was born and raised there, and oh, so I took the job at Sausalito, was there for a year as a manager, then left and had my own company, started it back then in 86, and since then I've had different stints with different companies. In fact, a company moved me out here to Atlanta, that's why I ended up here, was with them from 93 to 96, and then um, uh, back to my, my own company, and it's called the Bob Marshall Group, and I've had that company all these years, and have trained around the United States in most places and a little bit overseas, mainly in the UK, Malta, Cyprus, uh, some of those locations, but um, but that's it. And so I've been doing this for many, many years and, and definitely know a lot of people in the industry for sure. So tell me a little bit about the importance of, um, you know, behavioral changes and how they can have a huge impact or even like, you know, small examples, but make a big impact essentially, right, on behavior changes? Well, behavioral changes, one of the things I do teach is uh, based on neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, Everybody knows about um, walking on hot coals, uh, that whole thing. I've done that. Yes. In fact, Tony got in trouble just a couple of weeks ago for burning some people's feet. Um, but anyway, uh, neuro-linguistic programming was founded by two guys, John Grinder and Richard Bandler. And uh, I learned about it back in the, in the 80s when I was a regional manager. And so I took uh, courses in that. I, you can be actually certified in NLP. I'm not. Uh, but it's very powerful stuff. Uh, and and uh, from a behavioral point of view, I teach it all the time. And it's one of the presentations that I give that I'm asked to do over and over and over again, basically a behavioral a behavioral technique. I think of it as a way to teach a foreign language. Uh, sometimes people say it's awfully manipulative, and I don't think it's any more manipulative than speaking Spanish if you're in Madrid. Uh, but it's a way to communicate with people who don't communicate in the same mode that you do. And basically, it's divided into visual, auditory, and kinesthetic type people. So if you're a visual person, let's say it's how you process information, your mental map, and you're talking to a kinesthetic person, for instance, 
you will miss each other like two ships in the night. That's why you can make a great presentation. One of the reasons I'm not super fond of scripts, you can make a very great presentation and get a great response. And you hang up the phone, and then you make another one and get a great response. And then you make a third one exactly the same as the first two, and you, th- and you hang up and you think, that guy didn't understand a word I was saying. Well, it's true, because you were speaking in a language where they didn't process. And so one of the things in behavioral, if, if, that's the, if that's kind of what we're after in this question, is to teach people to be very excellent, I call it exquisite communicators, to be an elegant communicator so you can establish elegant rapport. If you can do that, um, then you will basically, um, I don't hate to say mesmerize, but you will become like blood brothers, blood sisters with the people you talk to, and they won't ever be able to resist you because to resist you is to resist themselves. Basic foundation of NLP. It's, you know, it's a lot involved in NLP. It's a big, big, big topic, but it's one of the things that is very powerful, and if you can teach people to be really, really good communicators, uh, the rest of the stuff will come. But communication is the key because what do we do? We communicate, and still... The big, big billers that I see, the men and women that are doing upwards of a million dollars a year in individual production are on the phone, and they're still on the phone, and they're communicating. They're not doing the the uh, Internet so much, not going on the job boards or the candidate boards, not doing that kind of stuff. They're actually establishing rapport, four elements of rapport, like, believe, trust, and understand you. Those four elements of rapport through becoming exquisite communicators within a defined or delimited niche, if you can do that, then you can totally um, make a ton of money in this thing that we call executive search or recruitment. So, Bob, give me an example, if you can, of maybe a behavior that you've helped someone, um, you know, change or uh, identify that they have and how to use that in their communication. Well, and I mean, obviously, what we just talked about in, in the NLP side of it, I think, uh, you know, one of the people that stand out in my mind, David Thaler, who I work with in 2006, he came to me uh, on a re- referral from Paul Hawkinson, who was the editor of the Fordyce Letter, which is an industry publication that we've had forever. I saw it in 1980 when I started a desk, and it was around you know, just till recently, actually, until they went out of business, Paul sold uh, his interest in the Fordyce letter, and then another group took it, and then they just ended up closing it. Anyway, this man by the name of David Thaler was an avid reader of the Fordyce letter, and he called Paul Hawkinson and asked Paul, is there some trainer out there, some coach, that could teach me to bill a million dollars a year in individual production? Well, luckily for me, Paul liked me a lot, and so he referred David to me. And I'd been asked that question many times in my life, and I just kind of slough it off or laugh about it and say no, because it takes too much time, and, it, and most people think they want to build that much, but they really don't. Well, David was different. He, he impressed me in a, with a lot of different things that he was saying, and he had all the fixable behaviors. That's why, uh, from a coaching standpoint, it's pretty easy to double a recruiter's production. And I know people think... Uh, some, I'm known for doing that sometimes. People say, oh, are you the guy that can double production? Well, it's not like it's a magical thing. It's that <laughs> most people do so many things wrong, it's easy to do that. Well, with David, just to give you a for instance, to, to how you change behavior, David was treating this business as a series of events instead of a process. 
That's a very important distinction. And so what he would do is he would take a candidate, an MPC, as management recruiters trains the most placeable candidate, he would take an MPC to the marketplace, he would present them to companies, he would arrange interviews, he would prep both sides, he would go through the debriefs, and he would close, and he would make a placement or not make a placement, and then he would do it again. <clears throat> so he was having this humongous roller coaster ride where he would make a placement, then he wouldn't make a placement, then he'd make a placement, then he wouldn't make a placement. And so what I taught him from the very beginning is big billers don't do it that way. Big billers treat this business as a process where they do everything every day. They market every day. They recruit every day. They match every day. They reference check every day. They close every day. They do everything every day. And they have a niche. They have a, a, a specialty that they're going to work within. And they want to develop that niche. You want to touch the people in your niche at the highest level, the C level, once a month. Uh, and probably once a quarter uh, verbally, and then the other two months uh, a quarter electronically. So what I got him to do right at the very beginning is to treat this business as a process and not a series of events. And then we pretty much fixed him right at the get-go doing that. Also, we found out, and it's not a secret, he's in a different niche now anyway, he had one client. And a lot of people do that sometimes. They find the goose that lays the golden egg, and they think, hey, this is really great. Well, David, had, he worked accounting finance, and he had Walmart all over the United States. Well, that's scary to somebody like me because then right away I'm going to, what happens if Walmart goes into a freeze? What if they decide they're not using recruiters anymore? What if they get a new VP of HR? I, mean, I don't know what the scenario is, but that's an awfully scary situation. So one of the very yeah. first things I did with David is let's call and develop some clients in different companies because what you're doing now is scaring me to death. So what we did is we divided, we, we developed rather a niche of 1,500 companies. Now, I know that may sound a lot. And by the way, this could be company contacts. So down here in Atlanta, Coca-Cola, which is huge, they could have like 10 different hiring authorities. I would count them as 10 different companies, even though it's all Coca-Cola. Well, we figure 1,500 because you can make 25 calls, let's say, a day. That'd be 125 a week, 500 a month, 1,500 a quarter. So we could rotate these guys once a quarter, and that's what we wanted to do. Well, you know, the end of that story, the funny part of that story is about four or five months as we started working together, Coca-Cola, well, actually David caused the problem. He was really upset that some of the Coke hiring authorities were dragging their feet. And he had to go through personnel, which a lot of times happens in big companies, which you don't want to do. But anyway, he was doing that. Well, he decided he's not going through personnel anymore. He's going to go right directly to the hiring authorities. Well, that's a taboo with a lot of people, and it was with this VP of HR. And when she found out what David was doing, she called him and said, what the heck, what are you doing this differently for? And he said, well, it's because you guys are taking too long through HR. And she said, well, first of all, um, I don't think we are, but secondly, you're fired and we're not going to use you anymore. Well, luckily, at that point, we had established this other marketplace for him, so it didn't impact him. Whereas if we hadn't done that, and he had done the same thing, he would have been out basically out of business. He'd lost his one client. So that's just one thing. I mean, there was a lot of things I did with David that I don't want to bore you with and take up <laughs> five hours, but it was the way I started with him. He had fixable behaviors. We changed his deficient behaviors into fixable behaviors, and then, um, you know, the rest is motion picture history, and he's totally uh, an honest guy, straight shooter, and he, um, 
at the end of that year, in 2006, I believe he did right over a million dollars in individual production with no support. I know people wow. always ask me that. Did he have, like, research assistants or secretaries and all? No, he just did it by himself. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I know. It's a pretty, so, you know, the, the money that people make is pretty scary sometimes when you look at it. But when you understand the numbers, it's totally doable. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was, so I was going to say, you know, that kind of le- led me to like the next question of, you know, the difference between really, you know, really successful billers who are doing, you know, 250, 300, 400,000 um, and the difference between the elite, the the million dollar billers. Um, and, and what are the, what are the, you know, I know you just went over some of the things that separate the two, but, but I guess, you know, maybe from someone that's in that place where they're doing three to 400, what are the, some of the first things they need to do to make shifts or changes in their, what they're doing in order to start working towards that million? Well, I can give you three basics that I've noticed over the years. And luckily for, you know, talking to somebody like me, I have been around many years and I've listened and I take good notes. Um, the three things that I notice when people ask me that question, and then there's a couple other things I can add to it. First of all, big billers do what you do, the average biller. They just do it more often. So if you're on the phone an hour a day, they're on two. If you're on two, they're on four. So the first thing you notice is they do what you do, they just do it more often. Number two, they do what you do, but they do it with more quality. Not because they're smarter or Mensa members or anything like that, but anything you do more often, you're going to be better at, right? If you, you know, Let's say you and I are going to have a free throw shooting contest, and, and I get to shoot 100 free throws a day, and you get to shoot 10. At the end of the week, I'll beat you. Not because I'm a better basketball player, but I got to practice more. Okay? And then the number three thing you notice with big billers, difference between them and average billers, they know they're going to be successful where the most, most of the rest of us are not sure. And they just have a different attitude. And, and it just comes across because people cannot resist an attitude, whether it's a good attitude or a bad attitude. Human beings copy behavior. Uh, the other two things that are, are big, 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 and I always try to talk to people at the beginning about this, the first problem we have in recruiting, and I think a lot of it is because we're people people that are gravitated towards this. We like to talk, like you're noticing me do right now, I mean, it's fun to, to do things with people over the phone, personal meetings and all that kind of stuff. So we, we enjoy doing that. We're, we, um, we like that. And so by, do, by, by having that ability, we can reach out and touch people. And, and bec- but here's the downside. We are not good planning planners and organizers. So we notice that the biggest problem we have in recruiting other than planning an organization, which is the biggest problem we have in recruiting, is working can't-help-job orders as search assignment quality job orders. And those are probably the two big things I would add. Planning an organization is critical. Nobody wants to do it. It's not fun to coach or teach. It's one of the most boring talks that you give, but it's really, really critical. But since we're people people, we don't gravitate towards that, and so that's why that falls apart. And the other thing is not understanding that when we're out there and we're making calls and we're writing job orders, you know, orders for people, um, that not every job order is search assignment quality, that there are different qualities of job order. Big billers get this immediately. The rest of us think every job order is a great job order, 
and it's a total mistake. In fact, a talk I give that's also pretty popular called Your Desk is a Manufacturing Plant, one of the things you talk about in that talk is the quality of the job orders that you write. And if you divided it into three categories like we do in that talk, search assignment quality, uh, matching quality, and can't help quality, if you wrote 15 job orders, zero to one out of 15 would be what we would call search assignment or best job orders. About four to five would be matching, not as good as best, but still good, still placeable. And then 10 or two-thirds are can't help. Deficient for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of times uh, not through no fault of the recruiter. So what we want to do is get the recruiters to be super discerning on the job orders that they write and then tend, and then move forward to work and don't work the ones where you're not going to make a placement on. And it's really hard to get that across to people because uh, a lot of times they think everything they write is going to be this golden, wonderful, search assignment quality job order. And when I say zero to one out of 15, and, and this is from great recruiters. It's still the same statistic. You have to determine which ones you're going to work. The big billers understand it. They work the best job orders. Well, when you work the best job orders, guess what? You make placements on those job orders because you found one of the three types of companies that, that need a recruiter. And those are basically companies that have a sense of urgency, companies that have a difficult position to fill, and you're like the court of last resort, and companies that are progressive and want to be kept abreast of top-notch talent as that talent surfaces. Well, as long as the people that you're calling fit into one of those three categories, and urgency may be the most important because you're paid as a recruiter to circumvent the time factor in a lot of, in a lot of ways, then you have a greater likelihood of writing the best job orders, and if you write the best job orders and work those best job orders, you have a greater likelihood of making the placements. Because it's not, I think people sometimes think recruiting is a HR function or a personnel function. It is not. It's, it's a function of solving companies' critical needs. Our fees are fairly substantial. If you're charging, let's say, 30% of realistic first-year earnings, and you're placing a guy at 100000 that's a $30,000 fee, right? And 200 that's a $60,000 fee. I mean, the, the fees are substantial. Now, why would companies pay that? Because they have a sense of urgency. They have a difficult position to fill. They've got to fill it, sometimes if they're progressive. So as long as you're working on in those lines, then you'll be successful. I find that a, a general malaise out there among the recruiters is working can't-help job orders as search assignments, not knowing the difference, and saying, boy, this recruitment job is terrible. Well, no, it's because you're, working, you're doing the recruitment job incorrectly. That's why it's terrible, because this job is a terrible job to do incorrectly. It's a great job to do correctly, but those are some of the things that you want to make sure recruiters know. And, again, you know, I'd, I'd spend all your day talking about different things like this, but it branches off into how to qualify a job order. That's a big, big topic. Because it's easy for me to say, well, just work the best job orders. Well, the next question for me is, <laughs> how do you find out what the best job order is? There's a way yeah. to do that. There, there's right. all kinds of ways to do this stuff. And it's usually that I've learned this over the years. All I'm going to share with you are techniques of big billers. Because if we can stand on the shoulders of our giants that preceded us, we should be able to see farther. So that's all I want to do. Let, let me explain to you how Dan Bolin, legendary recruiter, does it. How David Thaler did it during his million-dollar year. I mean, you know, I can do that. And then once you learn that, then you can you can make those techniques, those 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 things they did yours, and then you can emulate their production. And that's you know kind of how it's done. 
hard work, though. I don't want to make it sound, you know, maybe I'm making it sound too simple. No, you're not making it. You're not making it sound simple. Okay. <laughs> good, good. Well, then I'm glad. Because <laughs> I know yeah. I talk fast and I do jump around, but that's, you know, some of the things that I'm trying to get most of them packed in there for you. So, um, you know, with the recruiting industry today and, you know, with all the online and social and the way people are connecting with other people, I mean, what would you, what would you suggest, um, for the recruiters out there that are, let's say newer into the industry on the approach that they should, they should be to stand out, um, amongst the, the ranks of the other recruiters? Well, first of all, call. Don't forget the phone. I know everybody wants to do that and, you know, do the Internet, and do all those kind of fun things. But don't forget that the phone is critical. Um, so what do you do? You do? First of all, you develop a niche. Where do you want to work? And it can be anything that interests you because you're going to have to get up every day and get into that niche and talk to people, both hiring managers and candidates, so it should be something you like. Don't pick a niche that you hate just because you think you can make a lot of money at it. That would be a mistake. Life's too short. So pick something you like, then identify the 1,500 company contacts or thereabouts, in other words, enough company contacts that you can call and put that in your database because we're going to rotate these guys about, um, well, we'll we'll rotate them once a month uh, and uh, once a quarter verbally, and the other two times a month we'll send them an email. Okay, so we're going to get known and branded within that niche because we want to have a brand that's unique to us as much as possible within the niche. Um, uh, There's a a thing on branding that you want to make sure that you're known within that niche. Well, how do you get known? You've got to talk to people, and we want you also to call at the highest level. So don't be intimidated to uh, call a president of a company. You're either going to get the president of the company or you're going to get uh, their assistant. And you can talk to the assistant just like you can talk to the president, probably sometimes just as good. Realizing that 80% of job orders that are out there are unpublished. That's a a statistic that's been around forever, and it hasn't changed. 20% will be on the Internet, but those are what all your competitors are looking at as well. You don't want to be calling on job orders that are published, either electronically or in print, because those are not where you're needed. It's open sourcing. Anybody can work on those. You want to call the company and find out what they need, what kinds of positions they have open, and you'll find that from being on the phone. Another thing to remember, and most recruiters make this mistake as well, we think the biggest companies, like David Thaler did, (coughs) like with Walmart, the biggest companies need him, right? And that's where he's going to go. Well, we know statistically, and I do a report every month, a BLS analysis based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers that are really goofy, and I won't go into that part of it. But I I do the study based on the numbers so that I can explain to people a couple of different things. Number one, we really don't have unemployment where we place because management people and people with degrees, the unemployment rate's like 2.4%, 2.5%, basically no unemployment. But ADP Moody's runs a statistic every month, and I put it in my report every single month, and they tell you where new jobs are coming from. Well, according to them, and I have no reason to doubt at least this part of what they, what they put out there, and I've been doing this for, for years, and it doesn't change. 
something like 80% of all new job creation comes from small and mid-sized companies. Only 20% or thereabouts come from large companies. Well, yeah, what is the big mistake we recruiters make? We only call big companies. Well, we're missing 80% of where the new job growth is coming from. And when the way Moody's defines it is one to f- something like 1 to 49 people, employees, would be small, and 50 to 500 would be medium, and over 500 would be large. So the, what I always say to people is if you want to call the big companies of the world, like down here in Atlanta, it would be Coca-Cola and Home Depot and, and you know Delta Airlines, whatever, that's okay. Go ahead and do it. You're not going to place with them. But if you feel compelled, go ahead and call the big companies. But just make sure you call the small companies and the mid-sized companies. And indeed, when you look at the placement lists of big billers, you wouldn't recognize a name, a company name, on their list of placements because they've realized that fact. Well, how do you find those? That's that niche that I'm talking about, the developing of the niche, the 1,500, calling them, talking to them, calling in at the highest level. The reason you call in at the highest level, by the way, is wherever you penetrate a company is how you'll be treated within that company. Now, I know people think, oh, you've got to call HR. Well, you don't. I mean, you will be referred to HR in some cases, but that's, again, you're thinking of this job incorrectly. You're thinking of it as a personnel function, and our job's not a personnel function. So we don't want to call HR, even though a lot of times I know we're told to do that. We want to introduce ourselves to the highest person in the company and the one that has a stake in making their company a success because our people that we place can impact their success. And there's another, it's called the multiple of compensation method, how you value an employee that I won't bore you with right now. But the idea is, yes, a person has a multiple of their salary that is a va- that will bring value to the company, well, who, will, who would appreciate that argument? The president of the company would appreciate that argument. Why? Because they're responsible to their, their stockholders. They're responsible to the stakeholders. They're responsible to their customers. HR doesn't, well, I shouldn't say doesn't care. They care less about that because they're not, in, they're not involved in the bottom line. That's not what they do. That's the CEO. Or that's the CEO. That's the guy that's involved in the bottom line. So another reason why you want to call at the highest level and present at that high level, because you will make an impact at that level. And then your job becomes not easier, but a lot more straightforward, and you can become a lot more successful. So those are some of the things you know that you, that you look for and, and uh, that will cause you to be successful. That, is a great, that was a great answer. I, I, I like... I was just sitting back, kind of listening, in in awe, almost Bob, because <laughs> I didn't have any, I didn't have to jump in at all. I mean, it was so it, it was such a great answer. I I appreciate that. Such good information for those out there listening. And and um, I you know, I just have one more question. I wanted to ask you. Um, sure. Tell me a little bit about the hundred point day, because I think that is an interesting concept and and system that you've helped people. Uh, potentially what implement um, into you know building their business and and building up their billables right sure sure you ask me all these questions it usually take an hour to answer I know I'm trying to pack it in here Um, the 100 point sheet was developed by a guy named Bill I'll leave out his last name uh, I believe in North Carolina years years ago and his philosophy and, and this was a franchise owner and also a mathematician and so what he said was, we don't make a placement every day. 
and we're salespeople, so we like instant gratification. Well, since you don't make a placement every day, it would be great if you did. But since that's not probably in the works, you need to reward yourself for good production on a daily basis. So, And also, I think he thought that so much of the stuff is um, not measurable. He said, let's, let's assign point values to certain activities based on the centralness of the activity to making a placement. And so he invented this thing that we call, come, came to be known as a 100-point sheet. It's changed over the years. But the idea was if you made a marketing attempt, i.e. picking up the phone with the intent to make a marketing call, whether you get through or not, you got a point for that activity. If you got through and you made a presentation, marketing presentation, whether you were successful or not, you got another point for that. If you wrote a job order, you got 10 points. No matter the quality of the job order, still got 10 points for a job order. Send out, if you, in other words, an interview you set up, you got 15 points for that. He did realize the difference between a send out and a job order. Job orders are important. Send outs are critical. I think that's another mistake, by the way, that we, we sometimes make. We focus way too much <clears throat> excuse me, on job orders and not enough on send outs. I was a critical care trainer for a while, used to go into offices that were failing, and you'd see the best filled out job orders in the history of Western civilization and no send outs. And I always felt bad for those people that were failing because it was going to be a six-figure loss in most cases. And I thought, you know, you were trained wrong. You know, and and I, hopefully I didn't do it. But you got the idea that you were in the business of writing job orders. And while you do write job orders in what we do, no, 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 you're in the business of arranging send-outs. If you arrange send-outs, i.e. interviews, you'll be supremely successful. If you don't, you won't. Anyway, getting back to the 100-point sheet, uh, reference check, I think you got two points for that. If you were searching and doing recruiting, one point for a search attempt, picking up the phone with the intent to, to recruit. Um, if you get through to somebody you could recruit, you got a point for that. If you were successful and the guy, you got the guy, you got three points for that. 100 points for a placement. When you made a placement, you got points for that. So anyway, what McCormick did is he would use a planner, which is another thing that I teach under the planning and organization umbrella, um, use some kind of a daily planner, can be electronic, can be written, um, but whatever you use, some kind of a daytime or day planner. And then at the end of the day, because this is not a chicken track sheet, you don't want to make a call and then go and look at the 100-point sheet and put a mark, because that would drive you crazy and it wouldn't work. So you just work your day, and then at the end of the day, let's say it's 4 o'clock and you're breaking for the next, the new day, because we always want you to plan the last hour or so of your day for the next day. Um so you make, uh, you make your, as you're doing your plan, and you take your numbers and you plug it into the 100-point sheet and you add it up. And according to Bill, if you got 100 points in a day, you will, you're doing the activity necessary to make placements. You're doing, congratulations, you're doing great. If you get under 100 points a day, you're fooling yourself. There is no way you're going to make placements. And I know sometimes people say, well, gosh, you know, I only got 30 points. Well, it'd be like if I was if I was an ice skating instructor and I take you out to teach you how to ice skate. Well, the first day you after that that day of instruction, you're going to be sore, right? Because you're using muscles that you're not used to using. And the second time I teach you, you'll be sore, but less sore than you were the first day. And as time goes on, you won't be sore at all. Well, that's what happens with the hundred point sheet. Yeah, you may get thirty points the first day and forty points the next day, and little by little, you'll ramp up to over 100 points, and then you'll be doing the activity necessary to ensure that you'll make 
a place. We call it basically a low-risk operation versus a high-risk operation or the God-will-intervene type placements where you pray a lot and light no meters <laughs> and, then, and then God intervenes and you make a placement. Well, we don't really want you to have to, to do that. We want this to be a, as low-risk uh, operation as possible. Just a funny little you know, quick story on that one. When I was working in Reno, um, we uh, went through a recession, and we had the 100-point sheet, and I was the manager of the office, and we basically let everybody go but me. I was the only one making placements, and I wasn't doing that great. So I stopped doing the 100-point sheet. The franchisee was there, but he really didn't work a desk, and so it was just me, so why take my own points, right? So I noticed after a two or three weeks, maybe a month, I had very few things going on on my hot sheet, in other interviews in, in motion. And so I thought, you know, it would be interesting to take my 100-point sheet just to see where I am because I was honest. I was working hard every day. Um, uh, it just was, you know, I wasn't doing that well. So the first day I took, and I was always over 100 points, well over 100 points during the old days when I took my 100-point sheet. Well, the first time I took it, when I hadn't done it for a while, I had like 37 points. And I looked at that. And I thought, how can I have 37 points? Well, I was doing a lot of stupid activity. I was calling the same guy five times. You only get a chance. You can only count it one time. I was doing stuff that wasn't making any sense. And the 100-point sheet awards you for things that are central to making a placement, not the ancillary stuff that is still busy work and still work we do, but doesn't really amount to anything. So the next day I tried really hard, and I got like 56 points. And the next day, really, really hard again, is like 61. Well, it took me like two weeks. But after I got back up to 100 points again, then I noticed things appearing rather on my hot sheet, interviews in motion, and then I started making placements, and we started hiring people back, and the rest is motion picture history. So I know just from personal experience, it totally works, and it keeps you focused. Uh, it's not everybody love it. Uh, I, I've introduced it all over the place and overseas as well. In fact, the, the other funny story in London we had a manager, his name was Joe, leave out his last name, and I, I told him I was going to introduce it to all the folks in London, this 100-point sheet. And, he heard, and I did basically what you just heard me do. And he said, well, you know, Bob, I want us to be twice as good as the guys in America, so let's call it the 200-point sheet. And, and <laughs> that's, that's how I want you to introduce it. And I mean, he's the manager. I said, okay, you know, you're the boss. You want me to. So I introduced it as the 200-point sheet. And you know that office, after we put that in place, did twice as good as any of our office in America. Now, I don't know if it was because we called it a 200-point sheet, but some years, some years after that, I was talking to a, an old guy with the, with the company that I hadn't talked to in a long time over in London, and uh, we were talking about something, and he said, you know, Bob, I, he, I'm doing really well on the 200-point sheet, and it dawned on me I never corrected it. I never told him it was a 100-point sheet. So... For all they knew, all the people over there, they always thought it was a 200-point sheet, and that's how they worked it. So anyway, that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the Reader's Digest version of the 100-point sheet. Some people like it. Some people that don't like to be monitored don't like it. Um, I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I, I do teach it, and I know it works if it's used correctly, but uh, that's it. It's called the 100-point sheet. I, I like it. I mean, and it, it just puts a, you know, a, a much more tangible uh, you know daily accomplishment and a system in place that you could uh you know keep following and and developing on um to to earn those points and you know if you you know it's like anything if you get to a certain level of productivity and activity during the day and you're doing the right things every day then you're 
you're obviously eventually going to see the results. So it's doing the the daily things to, you know, reach the weekly, the monthly, the yearly goals, right? It it does, yeah, yeah. And goal that's another real big topic. But you're right, and it it's it's smart, I think. And and Bill was right to come up with a system like that to to monitor a, a business that's really hard to monitor. Yeah. Well, Bob, you know if. If anyone wanted to, to to reach out to you or touch base with you, I mean, what are you doing now? And, and is, you know, how would they do that? Sure. Well, I teach recruiters. That's yeah, I've been doing it forever, seems like. Um, yeah. They can either get me, they can call me because I'm a big phone guy, 770-898-5550. I'm in the Atlanta area. Um, or bob at themarshallplan.org, which is my email address, bob at the Marshall. Marshall is... L's, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, plan, P-L-A-N, like Nancy, dot org. And my website is www.themarshallplan.org. And it's all my products and services and all my stuff is is listed there. And, yeah, I'd love to love to talk to anybody. I'm real open with uh, things. I have a, a database of probably 4,000 people that I send stuff out to periodically. The BLS report always comes out monthly, and the, the people get that. So if anybody would like any of that stuff, just let me know. It doesn't cost anything, and, and I will uh, put them on the database. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Scott, what a what a great guest to have on the show today. Um, Bob Marshall, I want to thank you personally just because, I, I mean, I really found the the point system, the 100-point system, really interesting in terms of gamifying your productivity and really trying to have a, a great awareness of, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, where do I stand with everything that I know I should be doing? So, I mean, that was my introduction to that system. Um, and, I, I mean, I personally just found it very interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting system. And, you know, Bob mentions in the interview, Andrew, like how some people like it and some people don't. Some people yeah. use it, some don't, right? But I think um, it's a good it's a good thing to do to identify like what you're doing and maybe if you're focusing on the right activities during the day, you know. What I loved Andrew earlier in the interview, he talks about um, how most billers are doing things during the day as like as events, right? They're events that are happening throughout the day, not as a full process. And so I loved how he talked about the differences in those two things and how when you look at it and you start looking at it as a process, like an ongoing process all the time, not as one event happening, another event happening, how they're all correlated and you start identifying your purpose and your niche uh, in your in this business, um, how it, it really scales up and takes you to that elite, elite status. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, that's what we're all striving for, elite status. And uh, with that, Scott, I want to thank you for your interview today. I, of course, want to thank Bob Marshall for his time. Most of all, I want to thank all of our wonderful listeners out there. And again, remember, you can engage with Scott and I if you have questions, if you have comments, or really any feedback about the podcast. Help us make it better. That's what we're here for. We're trying to help you guys grow your business. So you can, again, reach me at andrew.alix at getviral.com. That's G-E-T-V. Y-R-A-L and Scott is at Scott at GetViral.com Scott thank you yeah thank you you're doing a great job all the time I love it oh that's what I strive for great (laughs) job for you and uh, with that take care everyone we'll see all of you next week on the Entrepreneurial Talent Recruiter Podcast Mm -hmm.